Bye. And Alex Cayeros. Bye-bye. Brian Bittner. Bye, everybody. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand. This has been our conversation on Memento, the 2000 film directed by Christopher Nolan, screenplay by Christopher Nolan and Jonathan Nolan. So we're talking about Memento. Uh, Before we get started, uh, at the time of this recording, we've just opened our Patreon vote, uh, which is the... The monthly vote we do where patrons get to choose what our patron exclusive episode is going to be. But this month is the battle of the second places. So all the second places from the previous votes are now uh, head to head. And it's quite a matchup of (laughs) Lady Bird versus the Lion King versus the Wolf of Wall Street versus Inside Man versus Starship Troopers. So sure. this is this is what you're missing over on the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon is trying to decide our fate between these five very similar movies. Okay, so Memento. So this is one of the the movies that has a, a video essay on it on the lessons from the screenplay. We're getting down to only a few of those left. Mm-hmm. We've talked about almost every movie now that there's a lessons from the screenplay video on. And This one in my memory is a pretty early one. I guess it's number 21, which is later than I actually thought it was. Uh, But Memory's pretty unreliable, Michael. Mm. It's it's very true. Um, (laughs) Yeah, as (laughs) watching this movie, I was like, is this going to be the hardest movie to talk about ever? Like, I'm confused just thinking about how you talk about the story. We're going to see what happens. But anyways, it was also very confusing making this video essay and trying to figure out the right angle to talk about it. But part of, but I, I knew I wanted to do something about Memento because I remember watching it, I believe, in high school. And, you know, it's the first Christopher Nolan movie that I saw, the first one that, like, went big. It was like this, oh, this indie director, it's this new, the Christopher Nolan, he's this new kid on the block. Uh and I think my English teacher was the one that was like, you people that like film, you got to see Memento. It's just like, it's crazy, man. Uh, so, yeah, the, all the things that Christopher Nolan goes on to be famous for, like the seeds of those things are found in this movie in a really interesting way. And while watching it, I was just feeling myself like, I want Christopher Nolan to make a movie where he's just trapped in a hotel with no budget again. Mm, like, yeah. I want that Christopher Nolan to you know see see that side of things again uh and this time i was also struck by the noir elements yeah uh i think because we we recently talked about the batman and trisha you definitely helped me like reframe that movie in the terms of like it's a classic film noir uh and i always knew that those elements were in memento but for some reason this time they were like front and center for me in a way that they hadn't been before so this it was interesting rewatching this movie as something that I had made a video on, you know, several years ago now. But also that I, you know, this was a DVD I watched over and over again in high school and early college. So like a lot of it is like seared into my brain at the same time. Uh, so just like a weird relationship with this movie is, is how I am feeling after watching it this most recent time. But overall, still enjoy it. Uh, so yeah, I'm curious to hear from you guys. Brian, tell me about Memento. I think the first time I heard about Memento, my mom actually had seen it. 
um, she went to like the local art house theater with some of her friends and they saw it and they were just so confused. They were just like, we were laughing, walking out of that movie. She's like, but it was great. You should see it. Amazing. That's adorable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, but then, yeah, I, I watched it and, um, and loved it right away. And then I, I, yeah, I saw it in some class then also, and appropriately for this movie, I don't remember even what that class was or why we were watching Memento in it, but I remember watching it in a classroom with other students, which is kind of a weird movie to watch, um, in class. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, it was when I was doing my uh, top 10 of the 2000s it was just missed the list but it was like the the definite number 11 like if anything doesn't it is absolutely 100 on the list um and uh and i love it i also had the dvd I, I think i mentioned this in a very early episode but that first special edition dvd back in those days it was like a light blue case folder basically mm. um and and you know had like the paper clip in it and everything and then you put the dvd in and you had to basically like pass psychological exams to get to the the, the content you know so early just, dvd days were pretty special Ooh. yeah and, and there would be like one of them uh, would be something just like there's four chairs and three of them are normal chairs and one of them just like a crazy space age like bonkers chair and it says like which of these does not belong or something it's like kind of just like an obvious you know dumb thing but my favorite one was just a picture of like a sort of sketch of two girls and one is whispering to the other and they're both smiling and the question is just why are they laughing at you and <laughs> and the and the wow. response the answers there were no answers it was just you chose a b c or d <laughs> I was like, what a great way to make me feel like I'm losing my mind before I watch Memento. <laughs> That's great. Uh, but yeah, really solid movie and rewatching it. Yeah, you know, I've, I've seen this movie every few years, so it's not one of those movies where I haven't seen in a really long time. Um, but it's just always such a joy to rewatch and, and look for things you missed and, and kind of get just a little bit more of a grasp on, on the plot and the structure. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Alex, what about you? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those movies from that this, that sweet spot, that moment of 1999, 2000, 2001, just like mm -hmm. so many formative movies for us, especially in our generation. And this is absolutely one of them where it's just, you know, seeing this movie. Yeah, I was immediately like, who's Christopher Nolan? He's amazing. This is exactly the kind of like puzzle box, mind bendy, twisty movie that, I, you know, especially at that age was like. The, the coolest stuff yeah uh, and it was definitely one of those dvds that I, I i remember i think some special features that were hidden and it was it was one of those just exciting movies of that time like the matrix dvd like the fight club dvd it's the memento mm -hmm. dvd uh so it has a very yeah like a time and place association in my mind and i haven't really revisited it since then mm. I'm, i probably watched it again like in college or something but um I haven't watched it for years and it was interesting to watch it again and just, you know, immediately when the opening shot began, you know, the the backwards uh, Polaroid, it was like, oh, yes, yes. Like this iconic shot. And, and so, so much came flooding back as I watched it, but then also so much felt fresh and new and was it was really fun to, to kind of see it with fresh adult eyes um, and and appreciate it even more. I think I think I, I was able to just. I, I was able to see everything as I watched it. It wasn't like those early viewings where it's just like, whoa, I'm still trying to take it in and put it together. I think I had enough of that, that stored in my RAM or whatever that I, I was able to to pick it up where I left off, you know, 
15 years ago or whatever and and go from there and it was just really enjoyable to rewatch so i'm happy we're talking about it nice yeah yeah that opening shot it's so good yeah. just doing so many things at once and yeah, yeah we'll, we'll talk about it um okay trisha yeah tell me about memento yeah, so my only memory of watching this movie for the first time was that I was sitting in the basement with one of my friends from high school watching it on probably VHS or, or DVD. I don't, I don't even remember, but we were at the climax and uh, my entire family walked downstairs and decided they needed to talk to me at that exact moment <laughs> while my friend and I were like the most intense, like what's going to happen? <laughs> and I just remember like pausing it and... And trying to be polite and be like, okay, what's going on? Like, what do you need? Because it was like three members of my family were just standing there trying to talk to me. And I was just like, what's going on? And my friend was sitting there like, <laughs> like just dying. And so that's my main memory of this movie. And eventually just screaming at my entire family to get out of there. Because I was like, you don't understand what you're doing to us right now. Anyway, uh, that aside... Um, that I really haven't basically seen it since then. Mm. Um, so it's, it's probably been at least 15 years, uh, or longer. And I feel, I felt when I was watching it in preparation for this podcast, this same sort of absolute like bogglement and frustration. Uh, <laughs> I, I just feel it makes, this movie makes me feel dumb. Um, <laughs> Because so, you know, on standardized tests that you take where they show you like a 3D like figure or whatever. And then it's like, what would this look like if it were rotated 90 degrees? And then they give you like the other, you know, um, sides of it that the skill that it takes to do that is called spatial reasoning. And even though this movie is linear or like it's two dimensional mm -hmm. theory in theory, it still feels like you need spatial reasoning to like put the pieces of it together. Um, anyway, spatial reasoning is a thing I don't have. Like, <laughs> it manifests itself in all kinds of ways in my life. The fact that I'm horrible at spatial reasoning. Um, it's why I don't understand how machines work. And uh, it's why I constantly knock things over because I don't understand how objects fit together in space. I also don't understand this movie or so much of it. Um, and a lot of Christopher Nolan's movies make me feel this way. Um, but I, it is such an accomplishment, not just because it fools people like me or, you know, frustrates people like me who don't have spatial reasoning, but it, when you watch it, you get that sense of engineering where you're just like, I'm watching something that was meticulously engineered, um, by someone who had a master vision of every single tiny bit of this. And even if you know how it plays out, I I think, I mean, I guess I haven't tried to watch it 20 times, but I think it does hold up upon rewatch. You know, a lot of movies, and I'm excited to talk about this aspect of it with you, but movies that have sort of gimmicky ideas at the heart of them feel like they're really fun to watch the first time around. You know, some people think about like The Sixth Sense or The Prestige yeah. or like movies with twists or, you know, one-shot movies and things like that. Um, and that maybe some of those things have diminishing returns. But I don't feel like they do in this movie. I think it's just as entertaining upon rewatch, or at least it was for me this time around. So, yeah, very excited to dive into all the different aspects of it with you guys. Yeah, I think, you know, Michael, you pointed out in the video, um, like, it, it, when is a gimmick a gimmick, basically? And it's like, mm -hmm. it's a gimmick when it doesn't actually support 
the you know the theme or the narrative or or whatever you're trying to do it's just there to be like a cool thing like you know a lot of movies just like dutch angles or whatever right it's like am i supposed to actually feel disoriented right now or did you just figure this would be a cool way to shoot this shot um but i also think another thing is as you pointed out trisha is something i think about a lot is when a movie has like that one thing right oh it's told in reverse or there's a big twist at the end or whatever would it work without that thing right and like this movie is just it's kind of a cool like you know thriller about a guy going to get revenge but he has you know a, a problem like it, it does feel like kind of a a hard-boiled detective like but like mm-hmm. you know neo-noir basically um and and i just find myself being like oh yeah i actually am interested in this story not just the way that it's being told and i think that's a huge part of why it works yeah well, I really like, Michael, how you identified the the idea of the designing principle in your LTS video about this, because that just feels like it sums up why this movie is so special, is that it feels like everything comes out of this singular designing principle of how do we put the audience into the actual headspace, into the experience of somebody with short-term mm-hmm. memory loss. And it's just such a brilliant solution to, to, to have these sequences deny you the information of what came before you know exactly like his experience he doesn't know what just came before he knows his deep history and his life before his accident but just before is always the problem and so how do you do that in a linear narrative you just give us the scenes in the wrong order so we never know what happened just before and it's just it's such a brilliant it seems so obvious but i think i was watching one of the behind the scenes or maybe it was in your video michael bert christopher nolan said he was banging his head against the wall to how to like put us in the headspace and he he came across this solution and it's it's crazy to even think about this movie existing without this solution because it's so integral to the experience of this character's journey um mm-hmm. but yeah i just i love when movies like we're saying are doing something that does that could be a gimmick that could just be oh it's a long take oh it's this whatever but in this movie it's just so it's so integral to everything else uh to the character to the ideas to the themes to the to the the way that we want to see the plot unfold because we want to understand what he's going through um so it it just instead of feeling frustrating and annoying it just feels thrilling to to be on that ride with the character yeah and the fact that he chose this structure as a solution to a problem not right i you know wanted to make a movie backwards like cool i'm gonna make a movie backwards so what's the plot? I got to figure that out now. It's like, no, no, the story was already there. And then he said like, oh no, the structure is actually there as the solution to a problem, as the way to support this. And I think that's that's what makes it not feel like a gimmick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if you needed to send a huge file to Leonard, Guy Pierce's character, you'd probably be very concerned about whether or not he actually received it. You could ship him a hard drive, which would at least let you track the package, but that's super annoying to do every time you want to send an important file. The better alternative would be to send that file using Massive. Massive is a file sharing service that lets media professionals quickly transfer terabytes of data to anyone in the world over the cloud. Massive provides complete visibility into the status of your client deliveries on a per-recipient basis. Emails are sent when downloads are initiated, and it allows you to keep tabs on who has downloaded what. And Massive seamlessly integrates with a number of apps, including Google Drive, Dropbox, AWS, Slack, and more. 
allowing you to conveniently send files, save large projects securely, and get notified about adjustments made by your team. Plus, with Massive, there are no limits to the amount of data you can send, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. Just pay as you go at $0.25 per gigabyte. To learn more and to sign up for Massive, head to massive.io slash beyond dash the dash screenplay. When you sign up at that link, you'll get 100 gigabytes free towards your transfer. That's massive.io slash beyond dash the dash screenplay for 100 gigabytes free. The link is in the show notes. Thanks to Massive for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Now, back to the episode. Yeah, well, and that's why I love that opening shot as you mentioned alex it's like iconic at this point yeah. but like you know the the polaroid flap on the polaroid but it's fading away is like it's doing thematic work but it's also beginning to teach the audience how you're gonna watch this mm-hmm. movie like time is moving backwards uh and introducing the idea of a polaroid and like you know we're gonna be using this like visual aid a lot in this movie um but yeah, this movie is also a really interesting case study of how you teach an audience to watch a movie, like the language mm. of the film. And there are some very uh, obvious and overt ways that it does that that kind of lends itself to that kind of studying. The most obvious being, you know, when we're going back in time, scene to scene, those scenes are in color. But when we're going right. forward in time, chronologically, it's in black and white. And so it's you know, it still requires work. You have to be paying attention to understand to, to kind of arrive at that conclusion. But it's a very clear way of signaling to the audience, like, think of these two things differently. And then it's also interesting, I, I didn't appreciate fully before um, that this movie even has the Christopher Nolan thing of like a flashback and a flashback. Because right, when yeah. we're in right. the black and white space, we're learning about Sammy Jenkins, which is a flashback. So, like, there's there's just so much time manipulation happening uh, in a way that I think you do understand emotionally, I would say. Like, I think even if you're lost and and I think to your point, Trisha, this is a really confusing movie. Like, that third dimension happens for me when it's like... I sit down to watch it and I think, I know how this movie is constructed. I made a video about it. These scenes go backwards. These scenes go forward. The ending is the middle. It starts at the end and the beginning. (laughs) I got it. And then I'm still, while watching it, like, wait, but what is happening? Like, even though I have, like, in theory, a grip on the structure of it, it's still this mind trip to... Yeah, it's hard for your brain to put those pieces together, but I think that's why it it has this kind of magical effect and makes you just kind of give yourself over to it and be with Leonard, the Guy Pierce character, on this journey of trying to figure out what what's going on. And I love we can talk about that more, but like the 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 noir detective thing where he's trying to solve a murder, but he's also constantly just trying to solve what's going on right at any moment right. so it's just constantly yeah. no, detecting this guy no <laughs> right trying to figure out what's going on another classic yeah. moment yeah well i think you know you guys are highlighting the the backward construction of the scenes that are in color as being a really critical way that we are put in in leonard's pov 
But there are actually a few other ways that the movie takes care to keep us and put us in Leonard's POV. And one of those is just with the voiceover. And I think that the voiceover is really crucial to this, uh, just to help us stay remotely oriented. Because if you, like, imagine a lot of these scenes and sequences of, like, watching Leonard try to figure something out, but not even just the, you know, him talking and narration in the black and white scenes, because that's VO in a way. But just the way that he legitimately talks to himself and talks to us for our benefit in the scenes that are in color is essential. Like when he sits on the toilet and he's looking at the empty bottle, he's like, I don't feel drunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. <laughs> where, you know, where am I basically? That, that sort of like wondering that he's doing, we could watch Guy Pierce act it out, but it wouldn't mean the same thing to us. Like think about when he opens the, the, in that same scene, he opens the um, drawer in the bedside table and he's like, just the Gideon Bible and nothing. And then there's a, gun right on Mm. top of it it's doing like comedy because it's messing with our expectations but it's also helping us stay exactly in like those little moments of surprise or intrigue or like hang on this isn't what i expected it was and just as crucial are the moments when there is no voiceover and it totally like makes us just stare at guy pierce to sort of figure out what Leonard is going through where it's omitting voiceover completely. I was thinking about, um, and there are some, this is the other thing. The editing of this movie is so complicated, Mm. but the scene where he's burning his wife's items, like there is no voiceover in that scene. So we're just watching him burning the items. But then there's some of those are like flashbacks Mm. where we see her like reading the novel or she's like, I'm reading it because I like it. And you're like, okay, there's no voiceover here. You're doing a different thing with editing. It's insanely complicated, but there's that commitment to, we know everything that Christopher Nolan wants us to know. We know things that only Leonard knows, but we don't know everything that Leonard knows. So (laughs) the VO is filling in gaps, but it's, and keeping us in his headspace in a helpful way, but it's also not revealing too much to us. Yeah. It's so <laughs> the much control of information throughout the movie is yeah. insane. Masterful. Yeah. It's something I um, think about now when movies have voiceover, because I brought it up in an episode once and now it's all I think about is like, where, what is the voiceover? Like, what is it actually right. doing? Right. Mm. Because, you know, the old timey film noir thing was like the character is just talking to you, the audience which means mm-hmm. the character doesn't exist within the container of the movie. Like it's breaking the fourth wall, you know, and there are movies like um, Denzel uh, Washington fallen or American beauty, where it's like, th- they're talking to the audience on purpose. Cause that is sort of like on purpose. The movie is kind of transcending moviness. Um, but something I noticed about Charlie Kaufman movies is there's almost always like the characters writing in their diary or something. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're hearing. And this movie does that in two ways. So during the black and white scenes, he's on the phone and that sort of gives us like an out to just do like we're going to do noir kind of talking. But and we're mm. going to tell you a story because we're telling it. We're trying to convince someone on the phone, this mystery person. Mm. And the fact that we are just hearing his thoughts, as you were just pointing out, Trisha, you know, and that does a lot um, to orient us. And I think was, there's like 
this is actually surprisingly a movie where I never felt disoriented. I've, I've, you know, I couldn't tell you what the plot was in order, you know, after the first time I saw it by any means. And I certainly don't think I understood the first time that the black and white was like in sequential order and then meeting the color. Like I wouldn't have been able to like eloquently say that, but another way that I never really felt disoriented in this movie is the fact that the black and white scenes are just in a room of a guy talking on a phone and telling a story. Yeah. So like, it's almost like you get to chill out during those scenes before you have to do math and, and, you know, figure things out. And then the color scenes, the fact that we get the last line or first line of mm-hmm. every scene right. shown to us again. So it's like, here's how we got here that imagine if instead of that, we just got, here's the scene, like the next scene was just, here's the scene that came before the last color scene you saw five minutes ago with no through line, you know, that would be so disorienting, but instead it it gives us these little uh uh-huh flashbacky prequely moments, right? Where it's like, Hey, your car, your, your window's broken. Oh, okay. And then, you know, 15 minutes later, the window gets shot out like, Oh, right. That's a thing we saw. Now we know how it happened. And movie language has told us how to read flashbacks and have those aha moments because even you know obviously prequels are like a movie long flashback but movies have had flashbacks since well Casablanca which we just talked about right where it's like we are going to show you a scene of a thing that happened before so like we already have that film language and understanding this is just a movie that every scene is a flashback to the previous scene which is obviously Mm -hmm. something we're not used to (laughs) Well, and I think what also helps is that Leonard is always confused when a scene starts. You know, right. it's, it's, sure. it's, it's, if this movie was told backwards with a protagonist that knew it was going on, mm. it would, I think it would be a lot more frustrating because it'd just be like, oh, OK, I guess it's all on me to do the work of putting this together. But the main character is literally the audience, like trying to put this thing together and figure out where they are and why they're there and what came before. And so I think that also just makes it a lot more it, it gives me permission as a viewer to not worry as much as I think I would if, if if Leonard wasn't also in my position. But because he doesn't know what happened, I don't feel like I'm supposed to know. And and it's OK that I don't know. And so I'm, I'm giving myself over to the question mark of this scene of like, I don't know why you're there, but he doesn't know either. And that's the point. Um, right. And that, that helps it from feeling like a. Yeah, there could be an aggravating version of this movie, which is once again, just backwards to be confusing uh, which is just making it not fun to watch. Uh, but instead, I'm with Leonard, and that's why it's fun to watch. Yeah. Well, right. That That's part of, like, the grammar, the language of the film is, like, pretty quickly you know the next time a scene starts, it's going to be Leonard's trying to figure out what's going on. Right. That's where I am also. And like you're saying, Brian, you know, if they uh, just played the scene and uh, there wasn't that connective tissue, you would feel super lost. But that's why the movie goes out of its way to give you like those memorable, like handing the baton over moments where like Mm -hmm. there's Joey Pants. He's like, Lenny, as he like hits the top of the car. It's a loud sound. It's a like it's a visual that you're going to remember in four minutes when we play that again. So you're going to get, okay this connected to that in a very clear and obvious way. uh, That's like, yeah, could be over the top and a different situation but is like desperately needed for the audience to have any chance of like linking these things together well and one of the things that really impressed me this time too is that 
although these scenes are being, you know, played in reverse order, they're because we're experiencing them, you know, front to back or beginning to end, then they still need to do the first act break into two, mm-hmm. like middle act, like crisis point thing, even though they're absolutely being told in the opposite order. So even though they're the scenes from the end of the story, they still have to do expository work. They still have to introduce us to the characters. Yeah. They still have to set up the world of the story. All the things that act one scenes have to do, even they are, even though they are from the end of the narrative. And it is astounding that this movie is able to do that elegantly. Yes. I was really noticing it during the scene where he's talking to the hotel clerk. Mm -hmm. And that's where, like, we finally start to get, and it's, you know, it's right near the beginning. And he's like, hey, um, I have this condition. He kind of explains it in words. And the hotel clerk just kind of lets him talk for a little bit and, like, kind of explain his condition. And then it's... It's just doing good expository work for the character, for the world. Okay, here we are at the discount inn. This is the kind of place it is, right? Like, this is what my memory condition is. And I've probably explained this to you before in, like, sort of his matter-of-fact way of, like, talking about it. And then the guy's like, yeah, Leonard, yeah, I know. Hey, Leonard, you know. (laughs) And then he's like, sorry, man. He's like, well, why did you let me go through all that? Well, I just think it's so fascinating. You know, they kind of hedged hedge it. Um... But it's what's needed in that scene because that scene is near the beginning of the movie as we, the audience, are experiencing it. And the same with all of the rest of the characters. And, you know, I think this time I was really bumping on how little we know about Joe Pantoliano's character. Like, you know, Natalie, we're like, okay, she's a bartender. She's also lost someone. Kind of all we need to know about her. But, like, why don't we know... How long Teddy and Leonard have known each other? Why don't we know what Teddy's job is? Like, I was kind of bumping on that this time around. But there's so much else that you're trying to, like, hold on to that the fact that the movie's kind of purposefully concealing that from you doesn't necessarily stand out to you the first time. It also yeah. raises a big question mark because, sure. you know, because there's the the writing on the back of the photo that says right. you don't believe what he says so he has right. said it pretty early on as like oh don't trust this guy he could be anything but i agree trisha it would be nice if at least there was a sense of if teddy ever said we've known each other for 10 years or like even if it was a lie yeah. i, I kind of want to know what the lie story is to not believe right. um exactly yeah. right yeah but I, I do think part of it is by design you know where what they're doing with these matrix kids where they're saying like <laughs> at the beginning you're like this is the guy that he kills right. because he's the guy right. you know right. and then here's this woman who you know who needs help and and who he maybe has some sort of you know relationship with or whatever and then as we go back in time and the movie goes forward in runtime we they sort of switch roles right where then natalie becomes less and less sympathetic and teddy becomes more and more not innocent necessarily but certainly not someone who we think needs to um needs to be shot in the head right 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 a great great casting you know because yet you assume that he's right. going to be a bad guy you know because joe pantoliano and uh and it and you, you see him once again being killed at the end as if the revenge has been gotten. Um, mm-hmm. So just very brilliant casting and brilliant way to start the movie off. Um, and I also think that 
just speaking of the revenge aspect, I, I really appreciate how the revenge, the need for revenge is, goes deeper than just the revenge itself. That for this character, it's like a reason to live, basically. It's a reason to even mm. bother doing anything or going on, um, which ends up being a big part of the twist at the end, actually. You right. know, his character motivation for for why he does what he does. Um, but I, I, I think that's also a really compelling choice. If you're going to have a character that in other circumstances, you know, you may just end up in like a nursing home or just, you know, really just like why do anything if you have no memory and you need something really intense to drive you and trying to solve the mystery of who you know raped and murdered your wife and you can't get more like potent than that as far as a revenge right. story so i i think it was a really you know I, I i get tired of revenge stories but this is a place where i think it's absolutely necessary for the character to be driven by mm-hmm. that kind of emotion because otherwise you do kind of wonder yeah why try so hard to do all this if your life is so difficult and keeping track of things is so difficult. Why would any be, be motivated to keep going like this? And, and you, right. you, mm-hmm. you need that as part of the character. And it's another way to help keep us oriented is there's just this very strong, right. clear goal that we have right. going throughout and everything is supporting that. Yeah. And it's kind of ultimately uh, a subversive revenge story. Right. In a way right. where, you know, he already got revenge. It didn't make him happy. Right. And so now he's lying to himself and who knows how many people he's killed right. uh, thinking that they were somebody right. else. Like it's it's a pretty dark, disturbing like twist and turn that I, I think I'd kind of forgotten. But this time it, it did hit me of like, oh, right. Like Christopher Nolan, you're kind of dark. Like this is a really dark right. ending to, to the story. But what a great example of a, a movie with a sort of, let's say, bad ending because it supports the theme. Right. And, you know, and, right. and like that's right. That's that's when movies that with like not happy endings make me excited when I'm like, oh, right. You did that because that's the story you're telling. I was really appreciating how much work the casting of Guy Pierce actually does mm. here, um, because we don't in Leonard's previous life. He was an insurance investigator, not a stone cold murderer, not somebody who like mm. lived a violent life in any way that we can tell. And it's interesting, you know, when you have like these kinds of sort of action-y, thriller-y, even detective-y stories, you have to make us, basically that's going to involve a protagonist that's in a field that is related to the thing or like has some training that would make them good at the thing. So they're like an ex-cop or they're a psychologist or they're a private a private eye or they're somebody who like is, you know, from the streets or the underworld and they have some kind of whatever. He's an insurance investigator. And <clears throat> while that might make you great at putting pieces together, he's like, oh, I had a lot of friends on the force. It's like, all right, sure. Where did that teach you to like duct tape this guy up in a closet and like take him out, you know, like in his bathroom, in his hotel. And the movie never bothers to explain any of that. Or like, you know, he just drags multiple people out to this factory and like kills them. He like chokes out Jimmy G with his bare hands. <laughs> and I was like, sorry, um, what, what's your training here, my guy? But it, I think Guy Pierce. Just everything about sort of his whole look and the way that he carries himself and like the tattoos kind of do mm-hmm. like feed into it. And 
Um, you know, we come to find out that that's not his suit. But even the way that he wears it, it's like, that's not a corporate suit. It doesn't fit you right. right. Like, you don't wear it right. Like, sort of the way that he just, like, like is. Like, there's just something about his face and his whole presentation that make you absolutely not doubt him in any way being very dangerous, right? Or, like, very able to navigate this world that he's trying to navigate. And so I think it's fascinating that the script doesn't bother to do any work on that. Uh, but they just give us Guy Pierce and we're just like, sure. Yeah. Interesting too, because the premise almost allows there to be this, maybe just fill in the blank question of what does happen to your personality if you can't form new memories? And if, sure. and if you're taking actions that you forget, is there some kind of muscle memory or some kind of, do you still mm. take something with you of like whatever the past few years have been for him, I guess, tagging along with Joe and killing people for him. Right. Um, uh, but yeah, I think, I think it's, there's something interesting about yeah watching his character and a lot of people say to him throughout, like, you don't know who you are. And also, right. um, you know, does somebody say you're not afraid of anything or like, why aren't you afraid? Yeah. Uh, that yeah. comes up at some point, but I think mm. there's something about, playing with the fact that if you can't retain memories and you're kind of always like a newborn every 30 minutes or whatever, you kind of don't have these normal human things that maybe come from additive experience over time, but you're just always kind of fresh. And you know, when he's, when he's running in that chase scene and he realizes, Oh, he's being chased. It's kind of a matter of fact realization. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem like terrified. He just kind of goes with it. Um, so the, his, his character seems to be almost in this kind of like, just always in between state of never really being that scared of anything. Cause his experience will always be over within like, you know, a couple hours. Um, so yeah, usually a couple minutes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Depending yeah. on how you can read, yeah, how you read the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I, um, I started watching severance also, which I know Alex, mm-hmm. you've started to, and, and the premise of that show is that you, some people get surgically, updated so that they don't remember their work lives and their work life doesn't remember their real life uh which means that like their the work personalities only ever exist to work like they go home like at the end they of were the day born into an, on their first day of work right and they go into an <laughs> elevator at 5 p.m and they come back out of the elevator in a different different clothes at 8 a.m the next day um but then there's sort of the, the show i'm only halfway in but the show is starting to you know explore but do you remember, as you're kind of saying, Alex, do you remember smells and emotions and, you know, that kind of thing? Like the things that you that aren't just your thoughts, the things that are instinctual, um, which is obviously what this movie is playing with, too. Not in the same way, but those things that are not just the not just the things, you know, but the things that you can feel, you know, when he's like, I, when I knock on this piece of what I know what it's going to sound like the those certainties, which obviously this movie is. Not certain about what our certainties and which is part of the fun of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That while you were talking there, Alex, it, a line came into my head and I couldn't remember where. And so I Googled it. And I remember that it's actually from the Truman Show where uh, Ed Harris mm-hmm. uh, line mm-hmm. of we accept the reality of the world with which we are presented. Mm. And I feel like this movie is like that happening every five minutes almost. It does. There's a little bit of. Uh, Something that doesn't quite hold water for me is the like, 
I can't form new memories after this moment, but I've developed this system, and it's all about learning to follow this sure. system. And there are rules to follow. And he always knows who John G is, and he always like there's certain things he seems to always know, even though he theoretically shouldn't. You know, he doesn't look at his chest every time he he comes to right, yeah. right, yeah. So, but I feel like it's there's enough other stuff that the movie is doing that I'm able to be like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's fine, yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I will say, and I'm I'm curious to hear you guys' thoughts on this because I haven't seen the movie enough times to like make sure everybody's performances work. So like, you know when you okay, some spoilers for the prestige, but you know when you go back after you know the twist in the prestige and you like start to comb through Christian Bale's performance, say, who is playing two different characters over the course of the movie, and you start to be realize that it's immaculate. Right? Like, you always can tell when you go back and rewatch, you're like, okay, I know he's this one. I know he's this one now and then. And like, everybody's performances make sense even after the twists are all revealed. And I was wondering if this movie holds water in that sense, because I was thinking about Natalie this time around. Mm -hmm. And when he walks into the bar, First of all, we see that she sees that he's in Jimmy's car. Right. Right. And she's like, oh, I thought clothes. you were someone else. But then he walks into the bar in Jimmy's suit. <laughs> right. And the reason he walks in there is because he found a coaster in the pocket that says, come by after Natalie. Presumably not written to him, but written to Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And then she doesn't seem in any way to know that he's probably the person who killed Jimmy. Or, like, she definitely, you know, there's a very sharp turn in the middle of her character arc where we start to realize we just thought she was tragic and battered, but now we realize she's sort of diabolical, which is, like, maybe the best scene in the entire movie, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, But going, if you start to read forward from that point, she still is, like, nice to him later. Right. Like, it nicer than she needs to be. Mm-hmm. And it's like, do you not know that you he killed your boyfriend? I feel like I wonder if some of those character motivation things all the way align um, when you start to think about it from the other characters' POVs. Yeah, I think, um, well, when you say performance, do you mean the actors or the sort of how the character is performing for... I'm going to go with both in this okay. case. Okay, I, I would say it's not an actor thing in this movie. Sure. Because... Of everything you're pointing out. I think that Natalie is written to be very sensitive towards Leonard in some scenes and very, uh, you know, suspicious of Leonard in some scenes and that kind of thing. And, and I think on a, from a writing standpoint, it probably doesn't really flow together that well. If you're like, oh, she's like, I'm going to use you. But then she's like, also, I kind of I care about you and I'm going to do And I'm going to spit in your beer. <laughs> right. Wait, no, give me that beer back. Right. So I think that that, you know, Carrie Ann Moss is doing um, the best she can with a with a complicated character who is designed to to always kind of be keeping you on your toes. 
but not necessarily in a yeah. way that actually holds water, as you're saying, if you if you try to do the the work. She he's literally wearing her dead boyfriend suit. <laughs> right. right. That's that's probably the the one part that, yeah, when I think back on it, because yeah, when she when he pulled up in the car and she saw him, I was thinking, I was like, wait a minute, this this has to be a bigger deal than I think it is. And then it kept going back in time. It's like, oh it is a big deal. Like it's a really big deal. Uh but I will say that, you know, that aside, uh, the fact that Teddy is ultimately the kind of, I think, a corrupt cop, basically, who who's, seems mm-hmm. to be using Leonard as like a hitman, like an unwitting mm-hmm. hitman to kill just to kill off people he wants to kill. Um, I, I think, you know, at least her her plot is motivated by that. Like she is still getting revenge for her dead boyfriend via leonard i still feel like she'd want leonard dead too um but if, if she somehow under, she seems to somehow understand that teddy is like behind it um and maybe that does come out at some point in their dialogue where teddy is mentioned or i don't know but or she knew teddy separately as a guy who was like on their on their case uh but you do have to do a lot of work as the audience to make it make sense and it's, it doesn't plug in easily I think she maybe even asks Leonard if he's Teddy at some point or if he mm-hmm. knows Teddy. But like, yeah. I, I do think that this film suffers from there was a lot of stuff happening off screen mm. that dramatically affects the plot that we don't know about because Leonard doesn't know about. But we as audience kind of need to know a bit more about it for it to all hold up. And yeah, so I agree that some of her motivations based on the information we have don't always make sense because there is this like she's dating a drug dealer that is working with Teddy. But like now that Jimmy's gone, people are going to be coming after her to get the money that's in Leonard's like there's a whole lot of other stuff happening in the background Mm -hmm. that I think it's very hard to understand until maybe the very end when you like really you know under you know get what happened but like and and this is actually the the period of the movie where i tune out a little bit is like the whole dodd like there's dodd somebody's got it dodd's chasing me we gotta kill dodd like who like dodd leonard dodd (laughs) and it's like (laughs) who's who is dodd and like why did he even matter in the end right and so it's like he's a guy that jimmy owed money to question mark that's now coming after to get the like there's just a lot of those motivations that dramatically affect the plot that we have a very tenuous understanding of uh and so maybe if we knew all those moving parts we'd understand you know the 3d chess that natalie's playing at every moment but because we don't it's like uh, maybe this works or maybe this doesn't make any sense why you're treating leonard the way you are in any given moment and it's mm. it's kind of a cop-out but it's it's almost like you, it feels like this movie can get away with it uniquely because of how much oh sure we're attached to leonard leonard's perspective and how mm-hmm. confused he is and how he is totally out of the loop throughout the whole movie um and i and i think the movie de- delivers enough emotional twists like natalie's turn where she goes from being yeah the battered wife or whatever to now being like the abuser basically when she's like i can do whatever the hell i want to you like you're an idiot like you know it's it's a really potent moment where you're like oh my god she is the femme fatale like really fatale (laughs) um and and you know what better way and it's such a perfect film noir setup of 
what better way to get all the secrets than to get him naked, you know, <laughs> like seduce him, see his tattoos. That's got all the information you need to, to manipulate him because that's what he's relying on to make sense of himself. Um, so just really cool use of the noir archetypes and, and making full use of like all the powers of the femme fatale to, to manipulate and seduce for a good reason, uh, this protagonist. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this is early Dolan filmography and Nolan has been criticized in other films for his women characters. (laughs) It's Nolan's Dead Wives Club. Um, And obviously there's a dead wife here. Um, (laughs) Always a dead wife. Nolan's Nolan's women are are dead or they're alive and battered and tragic. Or they're alive and evil. Sometimes they're alive and both. And then battered and, and then die in the middle. <laughs> and then they die. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then they join the Dead Wives Club later. And Hathaway. Um, and Hathaway makes she got, it. She escaped the there's, clubs. There's one. That's true. Um, but she is evil. She's lightly evil. Not an interstellar. Uh, she just believes in love. Oh, interstellar. Okay. Right. Yep. I thought you were talking about Catwoman. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, no. <laughs> she believes in the scientific um, power of love to reach across gravity. It's the fourth dimension or the fifth dimension. Or, <clears throat> anyway, this is not about interstellar. <laughs> time, time is a flat circle. <laughs> well, just to reinforce what you're saying, Alex, which is that there are very clear, like, filmic references that are happening here. This is an archetype from the genre that is being borrowed. And so you don't bump on it. I never, you know up until this time and, and it's very light bumps even still for me now like don't bump on it in this movie because you know this is the genre we're trading in and it's not about natalie's game right mm-hmm. and it's not about like even natalie's manipulation of leonard really it's about what is leonard gonna do with his condition and his desire for revenge his thirst for revenge um and who's you know Who's manipulating him potentially, but really, you know, we get the sense that he is a free agent and he is operating on his own free will. And that's the whole thing about detectives and hard-boiled detectives is that the question is about them and their, like, heart and soul is on the line, typically. It's usually not, are they going to get the bad guy? That's a curiosity that we have about how the mystery unravels. But it's like, will the detective come out of this with his soul intact? And that's the same question that Memento is asking. And so the femme fatale types and things like that and the logical gaps that might exist here um are no worse than they are in like any of the other twisty detective things that we love so right i was gonna say that it's starting starting to remind me of other classic noirs we've talked about where it's just yeah there's too many details and it doesn't quite add up but it doesn't really matter because the story wasn't even about those details anyway so it it does fit nicely into the genre in, in all these ways Right. It's one of those wiggly things where I hate the argument. In theory, I hate the argument of like, well, other movies of this genre aren't good at this. So it's fine if this movie isn't good at it either. But I love this movie. So it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about like double indemnity, actually, while Mm. watching this one. Probably the insurance angle Mm. uh, that that being a similar thing. But also, as you were talking about earlier, Brian, that movie has you know, a, a mechanic that justifies the voiceover, right? Where he's talking right. into the, like, the tape recorder notes yeah. thing, which is so such a fascinating device that they just had, like, a tape recorder to record their note. Anyway, that's it. We should talk about double indemnity at some point. Yes, yes we should. But it is really interesting that, yeah, as you were saying, Trisha, like, you know, who's manipulating who and that the ultimate reveal at the end is that 
the one doing the most manipulation is Leonard manipulating himself. Yep. And like, that's yep. such a cool, dark turn for this movie. Mm-hmm. Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Memento? Alex, do you want to start us off? Sure. I think it's just uh, this movie is like it's in your face with the lesson I'm about to say, which is raising questions and then answering them is really satisfying, especially in this kind of genre of a mystery thriller. And this movie is literally just a sequence of scenes that begin with a question and then uh, end with an answer to like the next question. <laughs> kind of. Or, see, I'm getting confused just even talking about it. It's so hard to talk yeah. about. That but yeah, <laughs> basically, it's 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 a movie that uh, is essentially constantly raising intriguing questions with where they choose to start the scenes. These scenes are starting mm-hmm. in interesting places with a chase or with sitting with a bottle in your lap. What happened before this? He's out in the middle of nowhere and there's a little like campfire. What's this going on? And I, I think it's, it's just a brilliant execution of I'm constantly engaged, even if I'm super confused, because intriguing questions are being asked. And then very shortly after, within a couple scenes, they're being answered in a fun way. So it's it's I'm I'm not having to hold on to these questions for too long. I, I don't have to keep them in my in my memory <laughs> banks. Um, I can I hold on to them for the length of the scene, the black and white interlude. And then immediately I get like, aha, I have an answer coming mm-hmm. up here. Um, and I think it's just a really good reminder that at any point in any movie, you want your audience to be asking a question, wondering, wanting to know the answer to a question, especially in a thriller mystery kind of genre. Um, so it's just a good, yeah. good example of just constantly raising questions and then answering them quickly enough that I don't have to, I, I'm not forgetting any of the questions. Yeah. I think that's like, kind of what my dumb pyramid graph was getting at in the memento video essay watching that again i was like what is it like there's, oh, there's like tears of tears, questions yeah. like what the hell are you talking about past michael it would never have flown like no, that that video I, I was like thinking about it i was like wow there's some wiggly stuff in here that would not have flown if we had tried to sell you on it this is yeah it's not one of my favorite videos. michael didn't have to sell himself back in the day that's why we've waited so long to talk about this i wasn't ready to watch that video again i love um, when you do the chart with the rearranging of the scenes though that was really, yeah. that's yeah. really cool yeah the gradient i don't know visually it could have been more interesting <laughs> there's also a triangle that at the top of the triangle you can see you a little saw that? piece i saw, you saw it that? And I, was, oh my I was so upset brian i remember rendering that out and being like god i should go back and fix that but in theory no one will ever notice it i noticed it oh. and it, it's devastating to me yeah that you and, and you know but it's fine because the internet's not written in pencil it's written in ink <laughs> <laughs> Trish, oh, sorry, did I say it's fine? I meant it's, <laughs> it's forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forever. yeah, yeah that so. one. Yeah. Uh, Trisha, what's your lesson? Yeah, so my lesson is about our best friend, Sammy Jenkins, a.k.a. Ned Ryerson. <laughs> um, I love Stephen Tobolowsky. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we've talked a little bit before about the concept of clones. And there's they're a really powerful device in film when you have characters that are in similar situations and then we kind of see where they end up and how it plays out. Um, we should, we should clarify because it's not like a common term what clones mean. Oh, yeah. Basically like right. a character in a movie who sort of like reflects usually the protagonist right. or somebody like this is what you will be if you keep going in this direction. Right. Up a mirror exactly. to them. This is, yeah. 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 This is where this path leads basically. Um, and it's fascinating that the Sammy Jenkins story 
is so long and told to us in so much detail Mm -hmm. and in itself is riveting. So oftentimes when we get these sort of clone characters, we kind of just get little hints, right? They're just sort of sketched in and we're kind of like, okay, that's a clone of the protagonist. I get it. Now he's living in a basement of this house and he's in Parasite, right? Um, But in this case, the details about the Sammy Jenkins story are what keep us hooked in and fascinated and what create all of, they create all of this like depth and richness to the thematic conversation because really it's this exploration of memory. Who are we really? Are we the same person? And if we can't form new memories and we can't like follow the own, the, like follow the thread of our own story, are we even ourselves? right? Have we completely lost ourselves and lost our identity in some really meaningful way? And the fact that the Sammy Jenkins story has this incredibly tragic ending hints to us that there like is potentially no good ending for Leonard's character. And I just think it's a really fascinating study on more extensive use of a clone character uh, as like, you know, a we often talk about like a dark mirror idea and that's usually a thing we hear about an antagonist. Sammy Jenkins is just there to be a dark mirror, to be this sort of clone, to create thematic depth to the story. And he's utilized, you know, quite a bit to do exactly that. And so I just think it's um, something I'm going to think about moving forward where like if my, if the theme of my story require sort of further intellectual or even like psychological exploration? Is there a way to do that? Not in the A plot, not in the B plot, not even in like a C plot necessarily, but in just sort of this like tertiary way um, that could also potentially like impact my main character or just the way that the audience reads the film. And of course this movie, you know, sort of pays it off at the end by telling you, basically Sammy's story. You are Sammy Jenkins. Right, exactly. Like So that helps a little bit. It's not just this completely side character. It's also just actually Leonard's story. Which I think it's fascinating. I was reading today that like a lot of people just don't believe Teddy about that, right? Mm. Like Hmm. there's, Mm. it's fascinating that when he says like, no, it was your wife that had diabetes. And we see those like cuts where, you know, he like pinches her on the thigh And then we see, and she's like, ow. And then we see another cut where he's like giving her an injection. And then we see another cut where he's pinching her again. He's like, no, no, no. Mm. I, you know, she didn't, she didn't. And, you know, Sammy Jenkins' story ends with him in an institution. And we know that that's not where Leonard ends up. So it's really blurry how much of it might be his story and how much of it might not be. Um, And I think that that's really interesting. I love that, that you can read it. Because I always just take him at his word, but that's really fun to think. Even that is up for debate. I always argue if it's not in the text, then it's not in the movie. But this is the person who made Inception. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Well, and I feel like you can not being able to read it is part of the point and part of the theme, even, right? Right. Like you can't know, like, I don't know what my past is, who am I, et cetera. And I feel like the Sam and Jenka story is doing just like basic work on top of all of that, which is why it's. I think it's extra impressive of just like when I'm lost and I don't know why Leonard is burning stuff at a campfire right now. And I'm kind of tired of trying to think about it. The Sammy Jenkins story is there happening 
in a chronological order. And as you put it out, Trisha, yep. is like extremely compelling unto itself. So there are parts of this movie where I feel like I'm more invested in that story than like, what are we going to do about Dodd? I don't right. even know what happens to Dodd. Is he still in the closet? I don't I think they I, dumped like, him somewhere or like took him, yeah, they let him, took him out of town. They like sent him away in his <laughs> own car. Okay. Great. But you're right. And there's a there's a time function that's happening, right? Where it gives you as the audience space to breathe. Yeah, right. And just be like, oh, okay, I don't have to solve a mystery in this scene. I can just watch this scene. Right. Yeah. Also, just take your own insulin. Diabetics everywhere. <laughs> no need to have someone else give it to you. Sorry, I am diabetic. Just take your own insulin, everyone. <laughs> seems, seems safer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Brian, what's your lesson? Uh, yeah, my lesson is about the control of information, which is obvious with this movie. But I was thinking mm. more about the different the different ways you can control information. Um, and I was thinking I've mentioned a couple episodes ago, maybe on Casablanca, about the difference between what we know or what we don't know versus what the character doesn't know, and how movies play with that. Um, and in many movies, uh, and especially this movie, they're often the same to keep us in the character's POV. Obviously, this entire movie is designed to reveal information as Leonard is is learning it. Um, and, but then when movies have, uh, when we know something the character doesn't know, then that can be dramatic irony. It can build suspense, right? The bomb under the table. Like we know it's there, but the characters don't know. So we are leaning forward. And then when the character knows something we don't know, it's usually to put questions in your mind, like, ooh, those two people just exchanged a look. What does that mean, right? Um, or a heist movie where here's the plan, fade out. And then, you, you know, you <laughs> see, so like the characters know what they're doing, but we don't know what they're doing. Um, and I was thinking about how this movie does it all and how it actually the way it sort of zooms out uh, from these different these different ways of controlling information. So it starts out very simply, like we are learning things as Leonard learns them. Uh, so, the you know, again, that's what the structure of this movie is. But then the more we learn, we start to feel like we're the smart ones because we now know more than Leonard does uh, because he, first of all, is does not going to remember it from one scene to the next. But Second of all, we're learning it in his past, which, of course, he doesn't remember. So we start to feel like, oh, OK, now we know who Natalie really is. Now we know this thing. And, you know, um, we know why that was written on the Polaroid. But you don't, Leonard. Uh, and then the movie does this big twist at the end, which then does the opposite, where Leonard... <laughs> Meta Leonard, right? Who who's like the 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 overarching Leonard who exists before and after this movie. Um, he we learned the truth, or, you know, or so the movie is telling us of Sammy's story that like Leonard lied to himself in order to go on this rampage, basically. Um, and then of course we learn that that he is just out. He's like a you know committing John G aside, where he is just going from <laughs> one to the next, because, lying to himself to 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 do this thing, right. To, to like tell, to give himself a, a drive. He says in the movie, if you don't have a strong drive, there's right. nothing to, to do. So he just keeps looking for the next John G and he keep, and he convinces himself to do that. Um, so it's this weird, we're like the middle of a Leonard sandwich, right. Where it's like <laughs> meta Leonard knows the most, we know the second most. And then scene to scene, Leonard knows the least. And, so yeah, all the different ways you can control information. It's just a really cool movie to study to see how the different ways uh, can be used to elicit 
different reactions from the audience and this movie does them all it just and it does them all in a way that sort of builds this this like growing changing structure and memento good i mean <laughs> it's just one of those first features where it is a director announcing like here's oh, yeah. here's what i'm into like i right. i am christopher nolan i am gonna do like the hell out of this all this stuff right not yeah. his first feature but Stay his first, right. for for, first right. big feature yeah. right right yeah Stay tuned for Tenet. <laughs> I'm going to do it again. But Clearly, I need to go back and we replace that pyramid graphic with, with a Leonard sandwich graphic. Like yeah. That's the yes. visual that yeah people need. Um, and yes, as Trish, you were just saying, we have a patron exclusive episode. If you want to hear our thoughts on Tenet, it's over on the Beyond Screenplay Patreon. We felt differently about that movie <laughs> than this one. No comment. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, uh, my lesson is just like a small, I'm, I'm still trying to actually parse what the lesson is, but it, it came from this this moment where, um, you know, Trisha, you were talking earlier about how how impressive it is that this movie is able to map linear character arcs onto a non-linear chronology. Yes. Uh, and yeah, we see that with Natalie and like somehow it has like all the perfect beats of the femme fatale where you're going back and forth about like, do I like her? Do I trust her? Do I want them to be together? No, she's evil. She's using like you have all those beats somehow while doing this this thing. And I was realizing that the climax of the film is Leonard and Teddy confronting each other. But also the beginning of the film is Leonard and Teddy confronting each other and Leonard killing Teddy. And because that both those things happen in the same place and a very similar context mm -hmm. and situation, they feel so connected in a way that yeah feels almost like a magic trick where it's like, mm. this is the climax. This is the end of that scene that I saw earlier, even though this scene happened way before that scene that I saw earlier. Right. But just like the design of those things that they're in the same spaces and Leonard's there to shoot somebody in the head, essentially. Um, yeah, just felt like this really interesting, unique example of like the power of setting and how that can overcome like temporal distance even and make mm. the make it emotionally feel like a connected climax even though it's completely out of order and on opposite sides of a movie and all that stuff um so somewhere in there some kind of lesson that gets at the power of setting the end. i like it yeah. i buy it which also is what I was saying about the black and white scenes, whereas the setting doesn't change. So you feel like, oh, we get to just like sit here for a little while and and not feel like, oh, God, now where are we? Now where are we? Now it's an oh, no, we're back in this familiar place for a little bit. Right. Mm. Yeah. 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 It's the same thing that, yeah, like we were just saying, the same Jenkins thing does. There's there's plenty of familiarity in this movie, which is great because so much of the rest of the movie is all about complete unfamiliarity. Right disorientation sure yeah um okay great so uh before we reveal what movie we're talking about next week what have you guys been watching brian what have you been watching recently uh well if you if you came to casablanca with us a couple weeks ago and you're looking for another 1942 film set overseas during the onset of world war ii i just happened to watch to be or not to be 
mm. which is uh, stars Carol Lombard and Jack Benny and a young hunky Robert Stack, which I wasn't prepared for. Um, and it's basically it's a comedy uh, and it's basically a troupe of actors who end up entangled in a Nazi plot and then they use their theatrical backgrounds to to thwart the you know the, the plot and uh, it's really fun and i just had a blast with it you, you could tell tarantino took a lot from it for inglorious bastards there are scenes mm. where i'm just like oh this is like he just did this scene basically uh which is really fun to watch um and and it's just one of those like really smart 1940s movies where you're just like man, you guys just like whip smart kind of writing and, and everything. And and I love love being able to watch a movie that's 80 years old and just feel like it it is very modern and does not feel, you know, dated in the ways that we would worry it, it does. So To Be or Not To Be, it's on HBO Max, which their like Turner Classic Movies uh, collection has become my my Netflix, basically. And, like I'm just going to go watch a very old movie. Uh, so, yeah, check it out. Thanks. Nice. Very cool. Okay. Trisha, what have you been watching? Yeah, so I caught a film noir, um, but it's from 1982, so it certainly I don't think would be considered a classic noir, uh, but it's called Still of the Night, and it is a film directed by uh, Robert Benton, um, who is a screenwriter and a director. He made Kramer versus Kramer, which is mm. a wonderful movie if you haven't seen it. Um, and this one, Still of the Night, stars Roy Scheider and Meryl Streep and Jessica Tandy. And Roy Scheider plays a psychiatrist, like he's a therapist, and one of his clients is killed. Um, and then Meryl Streep shows up and she's like, hey, uh, I was his mistress um, and I need you to like give his wife something from me, but claim he left it, claim that he left it here at your office kind of thing. And... Uh, it, it just goes into this, I don't know, it's really twisty. Um, it's very psychological, you know, because he's sort of, Roy Scheider is sort of trying to puzzle out, like, is anybody, is everybody, like, stable? Is nobody stable? Of course, there's kind of a romance with him and Meryl Streep. And um, there's also a lot of, like, New York City auction, like, fancy auction house stuff, because... Meryl Streep works at like a fancy auction house. And um, anyway, it's it's a very interesting film, 80, early 80s film noir. And uh, I just, I, I really liked it. Um, I, but I, it helps because, you know, Meryl Streep is a total babe and so good. So, so, so very good in it. So Roy Scheider's not bad either. Nice. I really want to see Brian run an auction. Oh yeah! Oh no! Yeah, <laughs> That'd be really fun. we need you to have run an a charity auction. auction, Brian. Yeah, really yeah. I need a nap just thinking about that. <laughs> uh, awesome, Alex. What have you been watching? Uh, so I'm going to circle back around to two TV shows I've already mentioned. On what am I watching? Uh, but I just dark finished... and dark. <laughs> oh, I'm really done with dark. <laughs> my husband may never be done with dark, but I'm done with dark. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Severance and the Dropout because I finished season one of severance oh, and nice. i and i finished watching the entirety of the dropout which is a limited series um i just want to re-recommend them uh, severance was a show that i was in the middle of the season thing a bit iffy about thinking is it doing the thing where it's, it's 
could be like five episodes, but it's dragging it out to be double the time. And you're just getting me to keep going with these cliffhangers. But man, the finale, like it pays off the season. And so it's like it's a good finale. So it's worth making through the season of severance for that. And the dropout was the opposite where I just never felt like it was being stretched out. It's such a wonderfully paced show. Such great performances, such a weird character study. It's about, you know, Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos, uh, just crazy Silicon Valley, true story, uh, which is just so compelling. So kind of re-recommend the dropout, especially on Hulu. It's just a really fun ride. And one of those shows where it just I, I, I just love this format of the limited series where it has a beginning, middle and end. It's exactly as long as it needs to be. And it's, there's no pressure for it to keep going. So it's just a complete wonderful story that is told over like eight episodes um but yeah loving loving hulu's limited series lately they're doing a great job mm. nice minor oh. spoiler for severance but uh i didn't know how much i needed uh sexual tension between john Turturro and christopher walken in my life until now <laughs> now i might have to watch this okay <laughs> there's some good stuff the only thing is I was going to say is I, I did finish watching Deep Water, which I, I told you guys I had started. Oh, yeah. How did, and, what's uh, your verdict? Um, <laughs> I talk about it a lot, but like off mic. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I do. I, I am very curious and want to watch it. It I listen, I am. I haven't read the Patricia Highsmith novel it's based on. And I'm sure it would not surprise me at all if it ends exactly the same way. But Patricia Highsmith novels often have. Um, a lot of coincidence in them and uh if that's a thing that yep no it doesn't it doesn't hold up in the movie form uh we are very skeptical of coincidences when we read about them in movies i mean when we watch them in movies versus when we read about them so uh mm. whew, anyway let's talk about deep water somebody tweeted me <laughs> let's get into it Trish, I'll, I'll watch it soon and we'll talk okay. beyond okay, the screenplay after dark episode yeah, exactly yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, cool. I recently watched John Wick. I had never seen wow. the John Wick films, and I was like, wow. all right, it's time to do that. Uh, and so, yeah, John, I'll just the IMDb description an ex hitman comes out of retirement to track down the gangsters that killed his dog and took everything from him. And that's all it's about. It's yeah. like, it's it's so simple, and it's almost like a, yeah, like, you could do a pretty good like LTS video about just simple storytelling, like simple but compelling. It's all there. All the beats are right. And it does just enough to get you invested and send you on the ride. And it's like, OK, like good, good work, movie. You, you movied pretty, pretty well there. I, I wanted to pitch a LTS video on Taken for that exact same reason. Like we should do episode like we back to back episodes of John Wick and Taken of just like set up a, something you care about, take it away, and then just root for someone to go murder everyone for ninety minutes. But only if we can only refer to that movie uh, as Straight Token with Liam Neeson's. <laughs> Token. Liam Neeson's. <laughs> yeah, that's the only way I will approve that. Awesome. Okay, cool. Well, uh, yeah, we want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. If you want to become a patron, head over to the Beyond Screenplay Patreon. We have lots of fun votes. Maybe a Beyond Screenplay After Dark on Deep Water. Who knows? <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editors, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. And today we're talking about Memento. I'm joined today by Trisha Rand. 
Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. 